everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, for the purposes of this podcast, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. And I You're not you required. So. No, no one is required to do anything, no, but I encourage can, you to you do can, so. you Take your shot. Call me anything you like. Uh, call me late for dinner. Um, hmm. But this is our letters podcast. This is where you get to control the conversation. Send us an email or write us a physical letter and uh, we will answer it. Yep. Our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Uh, send us a physical letter to critically acclaimed network P.O. Box 641565. Los Angeles, California, 90064. You don't have to, you don't have to do it as angrily as he, as he just spit that out. Uh, you, you can get like a big thick marker that makes yeah. it look like you're mad when you're writing it. <sighs> but we'll answer your letters. We like it. We like getting your letters. We like hearing from you. Really you do. get to talk about the, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. And, and, uh, and feel free. Like the people, uh, people ask us questions about how things work in the industry. People ask us our opinions about things. People take us to task for things that we got wrong. Or if you disagree with a review and you really like something mm. we disliked or vice versa, that's fair game too. Um, this time is yours. You could be about nothing. It'd be about silly, weird stuff. Okay. You can totally go nuts. Okay. Yeah. This, this is your time. What do you want to hear us talk about on the show? And, uh, we don't like to dilly dally. So let's just jump right into our first email. Yeah, here we go. Whitney, what have we got? Uh, here is a letter from JLo, uh, but Hi. specifically not that one. That's fine so too. This, this is not Jennifer Lopez. I Listen, I want to say this right now. Mm-hmm. I like Jennifer Lopez. If she wrote in, we'd just read that'd be letter. fine with that'd that. Yeah, yeah, fine. Maybe she's listening to the show. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, I loved you in Hustlers. Hustlers is excellent. You were you you were you were snubbed for an Oscar in Hustlers. <laughs> it's a great movie. Yeah. Uh, but J Lo says, uh, "Gents, once more, uh, Bibbs has pointed." Uh, posed a science question that had me trying to talk back to my speaker to explain. Oh, no. So it seems like another email is in order. Uh, In a recent episode of All Our Yesterdays, that's our Star Trek podcast, Uh uh, Bibbs asked why they included the point zero at the end of a star date. Okay. For anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about here, uh, if you don't watch Star Trek, most Star Trek episodes and movies begin by announcing the year, but the year is like it, it, it's, you know, spa- like, it's space calendar. Well, well, it's like you know how like uh, you know there's BC and then there's like AD mm-hmm. and like basically there was this huge historical event and everything before it is before mm. uh, Christ and everything afterwards it's is Anno Domini yeah. in the year of our Lord or Common Era if you prefer uh, today before mm. Common Era Common Era. Uh, the idea is that once we hit space travel, that was so huge it started like a new timeline basically mm. we started new time. times well, yeah. because we can't just go by earth calendars yeah. because it's other planets now we have to so, sort of come up with a universal calendar for all planets so most star trek episodes and or movies begin with at least one person saying something to the effect of star date mm. four two nine three three point, eight, point zero point yeah. zero and the implication is that four two nine three whatever like that that's like the year and assumably like the specific day mm. but the question is what is the point and it's usually like point one, and we assume that that's roughly equivalent to like one in the morning the, or whatever. The, the point is is like the hour, um, right? But there was one episode recently where they said point zero, and I, mostly just being cheeky, said, "Isn't that kind of redundant? Is shouldn't we just do we even need yeah, to well, say point zero? Here we are now." Uh, so uh, Bibbs asked why I include the point zero at the end of a start date, and that it would should be the same as a whole number. 
Yeah. Um, as a new Trekkie, I can't get into the specifics of star dates, but after a year of chem classes in college, okay. I can at least mention the importance of a point zero. Mm-hmm. A quick oversimplification. When talking about measurements, there is only so much accuracy that can be attained. And mm-hmm. a measurement is only accurate to plus or minus one in whatever decimal position last reported. Okay. So a measurement like 16.5 kilograms on an analog scale would be anywhere from 16.4 to 16.6. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Um, there's assuming, always a little wiggle room. Yeah. Assuming that the star date is somehow based on a metric system, saying that star date is like like uh, two seven twenty six seventy could be anywhere from twenty six sixty nine to twenty six seventy one, mm-hmm. uh, whereas a star date with a trailing zero would be like plus or minus point one. Uh, so, like, if if they give the whole number, mm-hmm. that means there's like a whole day margin of error. Whereas if they include the point zero, there's less margin of error. Okay, I can kind of see that. And even then, the point zero implies that, like, eh, close enough. Yeah, what what the unit of measurement uh, is, I can't really say, but adding the trailing zero is important. Uh, It's also worth noting that significant figures involve an element of human rounding with analog instruments. Uh, For something less scientifically rigid rigid as a captain's log, a wide margin of error should be fine. (coughs) Excuse me. But I'm sure the medical and scientific scientific departments have much more accurate time, uh, time measuring implements. Okay. Also, the little kid who wanted to run away from calculus was a big mood. <laughs> there, there's an episode where it's, it's established that uh, in the future of Star Trek, yeah. you take calculus when you're like... In the fourth when grade. Like, yeah, when you're like eight. It's like super important to know calculus. Like, it's not optional. Like, when, when I was... It's like, I, we, I we, learn, we learn arithmetic now, but yeah. now... Well, when I was in high school, only so much math was, like, required. Like, you had to get through, I think, like, Algebra 2 or okay. something like that, but like anything, you know, you didn't have to take trigonometry. You didn't have to take calculus per se. Right. Those were elective math. Uh, in Star Trek, no, you're gonna do right. that when you're a little kid. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, the, so the, there's whole episode the where like little, a little kid, little like, kid was like, from... "I don't want to go to calculus class." So yeah, yeah, the little kid who wanted to run away from calculus was a big mood. Glad to report that I finished calc two. Ooh. And won't need any more calc while finishing up my associate's yes! degree. And shouldn't need any more while pursuing my bachelor's either. Jazz to start season two, sincerely, J-Lo. J-Lo, um, I'm, I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm. I, I think I told this story before, but um, I had to take, uh, when we take our SATs, uh-huh. uh, which is a standardized testing we have in the United States, uh, and uh, a lot of, like, you know, it, it has your scores in the SATs, you're, you're uh, graded on uh, math, um, sort of uh, language skills and like mm. a couple of different uh, fields. Um, every high school kid takes an al- yeah. almost every high school kid takes yeah. an SAT. And, and they're starting to become less popular now, which is good. It's a flawed system, but whatever. Uh, in any case, there was a rule at the college I went to, UCLA, that like if you had math scores above a six thirty, okay. I think it was. Um, you didn't have to take another math class unless it was required for your major. Okay. Like you could just not take math. You, you just automatically. Like if you that, have a major that, that requires a lot of math, okay, you got to yeah. do a lot of math. That's the out of it. But like, if you're going to go into like American history, you don't have to do another math class. Mm. Um, I took my SATs and I did, I did really, really well in the English and like, like and, the verbal, and yeah. verb, the verbal, I did great, really, really awesome. Very proud of my scores. And then for math, I got a six twenty. So just under the required Just number. under, and I was like, fuck this. <laughs> and so I crammed my ass off, and I went in, and I took my SAT again, mm. and I got 
a 640. Ah, you did it. I didn't learn a lot more math, but I got two more questions right, and then I didn't have to take math again. It was the best. Yeah, so I'm um, totally with you. If you're not, if math is not your thing, I totally understand your relation at not needing yeah. to take anymore. Math was my thing. Oh, wow. I, I always loved numbers. I was one of the few kids who was not just good at geometry, but uh, loved it. Oh, well, you're really like, shooting measuring. a hole in my theory that film critics are just people who are bad at math. Uh, well, because that's well, me. I'm, that's, well, I'm, I'm getting like doing nothing else. I'm getting to that. Oh, um, sorry, <laughs> uh, I I did uh, fine in math throughout you know elementary school. Yeah. I, I did okay in math in junior high. I ended up having to take two pre like I got the C plus in pre algebra. Mm-hmm. But my elementary school is one of those you know grade free, not so standard, not so test oriented kinds of schools. It's teaching you more about life experience. So I didn't test very well when yeah. I got to a school where they actually started to sit, give out grades. Yeah, and. Um, so I had to take uh, two units of pre-algebra, and then I took algebra uh, yeah. in the ninth grade. Okay. Um, so by the time I got to the end of high school, I had taken trig. I took algebra one and two, I took uh, geometry, and I took trig. And I liked all of those, and I did incredibly well in all of those classes. Great. And I figured by the time I get to college, first year in college, I can take calculus. Finally move into that, this mysterious new math yeah. that I heard so much about from the you're film Standing Delivery. You're going to be in the engineering room yeah. in Star Trek that next thing you know. Like, you're yeah, it's like, like okay, yeah, it's like, okay, like repeating series of numbers and this is all going to be very, very exciting. And it's the first day of calc, they said, everything you've learned up until now, that's just like number basics. This is like more applied math and it's going to be very, very different from what you're used to. Yeah. It's like a whole totally new set of rules. Yeah. And... I did so bad in calculus. Yeah. I actually ended up f- like very high fail in that class, but yeah, I failed calculus. You, you were calculus trying really, really hard, day. but it wasn't. But I, I just, I wasn't grasping it. For some reason, I like hit a wall when it came to calculus. Man. So I took it again and I barely passed the second wow. time. Um, and I was done with math after yeah. that because I, I just couldn't roll with calculus the same way I was rolling with like trig and algebra yeah, and geometry and all yeah. these other things. I was just... Yeah. Got my head, even chemistry and physics, like I was getting my head around these things really well. Yeah. Calculus is is a brick. Yeah. Well, it happens, mm. right? You're pushing yourself at those institutes of higher mm. learning. Um, but in any case, thanks, thank you for that. That actually does explain that. Mm. That's a really good explanation for that. For so thank s- you for science, that. Scientific number. For, wh- number for why yeah. there needed to be a point zero. Because you're right. Yeah, otherwise it would have been just the whole day. I get yeah. it. Nicely done. Thank you right. so much. And um, I learned something. Thank you. Also, if the, what if the captain has to make a second... Entry for that day, and they then have to clear well, then they, the, they, the decimal. I get it. Right. Right. Although uh, you think you think the computer is logging what time it's being recorded, and they don't need to say it. I suppose so. Yeah, maybe they. I have, guess, maybe they do have to say it. I think. I think Star Trek started doing that like before they had any inclination that computers would ever be able to do that uh-huh. really easily, <laughs> and then by the time we knew computers could do that really, really easily. It's just kind of grandfathered into the premise. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And I'm moving on. Here's a letter from Tom, T-O-M exclamation point. Oh shit. Tom. Tom. Hey Tom. Hi Uh, Tom. Hello to my two favorite critics. Thanks. Oh, oh, push off. Um, I recently watched Titan much later in the UK, thanks to a staggered release. And I loved it easily. uh, One of my top five films of last year. Anyway, while watching Titan, I couldn't help but draw two huge parallels to another movie that it shared some incredible similarities to that it cannot be coincidental. Okay. In 2012, there was a fantastic documentary released called The Imposter. It told the true story of a missing child and how a grown man pretended or impersonated that child and wormed his way into a family's home, seemingly fooling them, although this is heavily debated in the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did the family really not see that the child was clearly not their son, or were they just lacking any possible outcome for the sake of closure? Right. I remember hearing Um, about that. I never saw that. I 
I did, it, it was a good film. I did see that yeah. one. Uh, this is incredibly similar to the plot of Titan, where a woman pretends to be the son of a fireman and works her way into his home and family. Uh, the connection they share is also left open. Does the fireman really not see that this is clearly not his son, or is he also being naive after having dealt with the trauma of losing his child? Mm. This is answered in the film, but it will all remain. It remains open for the majority of the runtime. Right. Uh, both films also feature a cover of Wayfaring Stranger, performed by 16 Horsepower, oh, wow. a relatively obscure band and cover, with the imposter using it to great effect in a truly haunting scene at the end of the movie. Wow. When the imposter came out in 2012, I remember looking for the song on YouTube and only finding one single upload of the song with under 1,000 views, uh, proving that this song isn't well-known either, and I haven't heard it being used or mentioned in anything since. Yeah, that that right there. That's a little too much to you, be coincidence. You went, you went from, okay, there's an interesting parallel here. That could be a coincidence to finding something where it's just like, now it's become Ju- implausible that it's a coincidence. Julia Ducournau definitely saw that movie. Well, <laughs> almost definitely. Almost, it, or at least be, the music supervisor. It would be did. a that's hell yeah. of a coincidence. Yeah. It would be a hell of a coincidence. Yeah, that's, yeah, both, that's, that's a great observation. Both films presenting similar stories, themes, and obscure covers uh, cannot be a pure coincidence, and I would yeah. hazard to guess that someone working on T10 had watched The Imposter and took yeah. some of the beats and elements as inspiration or mm-hmm. a potential guideline. Makes sense. My question is, do you know of any similar things where two movies share some weird coincidences both in front of or behind the camera? Ah. Thanks for all you do. Your podcast keeps me company on my two-hour work commutes. Tom! <laughs> um, thank you so much for that. That's interesting. Mm. I didn't know about that one. That's yeah, kind of let's, fun. Let's see. What is... Uh... Of, there was this whole... Um, there's this... Um, we were just talking about Star Trek, and Star Trek has mm. this theory of parallel development, uh, where the idea is that... Uh, Are you going to do DS9 and Babylon 5? No, well, no, but yeah, mm. kind of. Um, the idea in Star Trek is that um, if uh, intelligent civilizations... Uh, evolved on different planets they would probably evolve in somewhat similar ways in that they would invent this technology before that technology Mm. because that's the most logical way to do that like you'd probably invent fire before you invented dynamite that kind of thing Uh, and as a result a lot of civilizations will go through certain parallel stages of development like you'll both go through an iron age you'll both go through like whatever Um, and there might be some cultural similarities as well as a result of that um, and this works artistically as well. And there's a lot of examples throughout Hollywood history of similar projects emerging more or less at the same time. Often just be- initially just because two people had a similar idea. Yeah. But then one idea ends up, you know, getting picked up and variety reports that, oh, hey, there's, I forget which one came first, but like, oh, hey, there's going to be a volcano movie coming out called Dante's Peak. And then one studio is like, you well, we, we had a volcano script, didn't we? Well, fuck it. Let's do it. Like, <laughs> volcanoes are in right now. And so they came out with Volcano, or vice versa. I forget which one came first. Um, so this kind of thing happens kind of a lot. Yeah, there's um, the the same year that uh, Bugs Life and Ants came out. Yeah. Uh, they came out within a couple months of each other. Uh, yeah. There was uh, Deep Impact and Armageddon. Two big yeah. comet apocalypse movies came out within a couple months of each other. One that I found really uncanny was uh, the movie Simon Birch. Oh. Uh, which was based on a, a, a uh, John Irving novel, yeah, and uh, a movie called The Mighty mm-hmm. uh, shared a lot of similarities, and yeah. those came out within a few months. I never saw other. Simon Birch. The Mighty is quite good, though. I like The Mighty. I like them both. Okay, uh, I think The Mighty is the better film. Okay, um, um, but the example you brought up was, and this is a case where there's actually been some sort of question about it. Uh, but uh, J. Michael Straczynski, uh, a famed sci-fi writer. 
uh, had pitched an idea for a Star Trek spinoff that instead of taking place on a ship that was traveling throughout the galaxy, took place on a big space station and everyone in the galaxy would eventually come to them mm-hmm. because there's this big hub of diplomacy and commerce. Um, Star Trek passed on this. And so he took it somewhere else. Somewhere mm-hmm. else said yes. And around the time when he was working on this show, which would come to be called Babylon 5, Star Trek just happened to develop a spinoff that was set at a space station called mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine, and they ended up coming out at almost the exact same time. I think uh, Babylon 5 technically beat Deep Space Nine to the punch. Let, yeah. me, let me look up but the date cl- on but the But they were Babylon clearly being made around the same TV time. Movie, and, it's yeah. sort of, and there's a sort of thing where, like, no, I don't think anyone's ever directly made an accusation, but almost every yeah. single time it comes up, there's always this very pregnant pause where it's just like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where like that doesn't look good, does it? We're not accusing anyone of anything, but it doesn't look good. Oh, Deep Space Nine beat it beat Babylon Five to the air by a year. Yeah, because DS Nine started in '93 and Babylon Five came out in '94. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, um, mm, who yeah. who's zooming who here? It's it's yeah. not really clear. Did, when Michael when Michael J. Straczynski J. Michael or J. J. Michael Straczynski uh, presented his pitch, maybe they yeah. were already working on a space station Star Trek show. Yeah, who's to say? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's been no. There's this is not a Harlan Ellison situation. Nobody's yeah. sued anybody, but no. there's a lot of lot of dark coincidences. But, but oftentimes in cases like this, where um, a movie does seem to have properly ripped someone off, there is a lawsuit. Case in point, Harlan Ellison. Uh, when James Cameron made the movie The Terminator was the movie that made his career. He'd only directed one low-budget horror sequel before, and he'd done a lot of work behind the scenes. But The Terminator was this incredibly ambitious, relatively low-budget action adventure with a really big, high concept. And James Cameron... You, if you if you watch a lot of Outer Limits, you'll see like there's similarities to a couple of episodes, particularly one called Soldier, and another one called Demon with a Glass Hand. Uh... And if you look at like, oh, that's that could be a coincidence. That could just be like good ideas mm-hmm. working the same way. And then I believe it was in an issue of Starlog when James Cameron said, and I took my influence in these couple of Outer Limits episodes, at which point Harlan Ellison went, uh, you owe me some mother some motherfucking money. Ah. Uh-huh. And, and he, he sued and he him. Got it. And he sued him and now Harlan Ellison's name is on that movie now. Uh He's not a credited writer. There's some sort of like, like special consultation credit. Like yeah. he, he has a credit, but it's not as a writer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he he won that case. Harlan yeah. Ellison won that case. Uh, so that's another example. Then Harlan Ellison sued a lot of people for shit like that. Um, oh, here's here's one uh, that, that oh, another. There's a, a joke in uh, an episode of Freakazoid where they stumble mm-hmm. into a science fiction convention. Yeah. Freakazoid's being chased by fanboy. He's a supervillain. He, yeah. he fans out and he gives you film trivia until you just you're bored and you fall asleep. It's like I need you to stop chasing me. What if I gave you the script to, to the, the just recently written Batman movie? Ah, I plucked that off the internet last night. How about if I give you your very own Harlan Ellison? <laughs> he hands him Harlan <laughs> Ellison, and, and in what I think is one of the wickedest jokes on the show, fanboy looks at him and it says, "Who's that?" It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> so fucking rude. Ouch. <laughs> Uh, your very own Harlan Ellison. Nice. Who's that? Um, in any case, uh, another another example of a successful lawsuit mm. uh, was uh, Fistful of Dollars. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, Fistful of Dollars was the film was that it? made uh, Sergio Leone's career. It was the first film of the Man With No Name trilogy. Great motion picture. Did, did Kurosawa sue him? Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Sergio Leone uh, ripped the fuck off 
of uh, the film Yojimbo, directed by Kurt yeah, Sound, directed it, by Toshiro Mifune. R- rather well-known remake of Yojimbo. It's, it's, it, but it wasn't originally called a remake. Oh, originally, it was just a movie that happened to have a lot of similarities. And by happened to have a lot of similarities, I mean the plot is exactly the same, and many of the shots and mm. editing choices are exactly the same. The, the dog with the hand in its mouth is yeah. in both. Uh, yeah, so Kurosawa sued, uh, and uh, yeah... Yeah, I'm looking at Kurosawa insisted that Leone had made a fine movie, but it was my movie. Yeah. So I apologize. Uh, uh, they they settled out of court okay. for 15% of the worldwide receipts of A Fistful of Dollars, and that wow. was a very successful movie. Oh, I'm, Kurosawa died a rich man then, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, he did fine. So, um, so yeah, When generally speaking, you want to call your shots. Yeah. Um, but um, that could be, but I don't think what we're talking about with Titan is necessarily legally actionable. No. And, especially because it was like based off of like a true story and then what you can do about that. Um, but Luca, what are you doing? Chewing on something. Luca, oh, he's playing with the one of the toys. You're actually supposed to be doing that. I'm the jerk. Yeah. Um, you, you got him that toy. So I did. He, he, he and for once, he's actually playing with a toy we got him instead of like knocking over glasses and breaking them. So thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, they don't put them on milk curtains anymore, but used to be able to like sort of peel the thing off the cat. Oh, yeah. We would always peel it off and just throw it over our shoulders because so yeah. the cats loved playing cats with love those things. Stuff. In any case, um, that sounds like the song is not legally actionable. It sounds like it's just inspiration mm-hmm. and they're calling their shot but with that song, but oh, um, it's well, a fun one. What was the uh, the Cancel Too Soon animated series we did about mm. Sergeant Pectoral and his testicular commandos? Oh, the G.I. Joe one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was Sergeant... Oh, um, what was that hold on a second i'll look it up i can't remember the exact it's like the the biggest manliest cartoon show yeah. ever it's like not sergeant slaughter it's like sergeant savage or sergeant Cap- savage, savage and his uh, sergeant savage and his screaming eagles and it okay. was a, basically the gi joe story that you all know and love from like people like you know snake eyes and destro and cobra commander uh that was like super duper popular in the 80s and it started like run, winding down and not selling as many toys in the 90s and so they decided to reboot it somewhat by creating new characters and new action figures and new vehicles and stuff in the 90s and it never got further than a pilot you could get that pilot because they would sell it with the toys so it was like on a vhs mm-hmm. but they never made another show with it the pilot was captain america yeah, like literally, this guy was, was like the biggest a, hero a, a in World, World War II. World War II soldier. He who goes was, missing, yeah. and he's been he's been like cryogenically frozen, and he wakes up with superpowers, and then he assembles a team of of heroes to mm-hmm. fight. Uh, uh, like basically, uh, basically, he he teams up to fight uh, Hydra because the whole thing is like these Nazis have been like hiding out in plain sight mm-hmm. in capitalism this whole time, and they've just been waiting to strike. It's like for- it's. I mean, granted, the Hydra thing was a bit more modern, but regardless, like that, the Cats in America ripoff is huge. It, it's I don't know if there was any kind of action taken. Yeah. Maybe because the show wasn't successful, they didn't feel the need to. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Battlestar Galactica oh, got know, sued. Here's a they? good. Here's a good obscure one. Yeah. Um, because the the source and what ripped it off are both incredibly obscure. Okay. Uh, but there was a Super Nintendo video game called Booger Man. Uh, and you played okay. a, a fellow. You played as a superhero that would flick boogers. At the I bad vaguely guys. remember this. Yeah. Yes. And they called it a pick and flick adventure. Is the, uh, they're trying to be really gross about it. Very mucus based video. Thank game. you, Nickelodeon. <laughs> thank you so, so much. bloody much. Um, I I'm also a big fan of a radio drama company called ZBS. 
And okay. uh, they have a series of science fiction stories starring Ruby, the galactic gumshoe. Uh, look up ZBS, mm-hmm. shell out as much money as you can spare to buy their radio dramas because they're all wonderful. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but in Ruby 2, which I think was uh, put out in like 81 or 82, the the characters, are their minds are being sort of taken over by pop media. Mm-hmm. And in, in the show, characters watch this TV program called The Booger Man. And it shows up as, I'm the booger man. It's more like a monster. And he says, I'm going to pick and flick. He says pick and flick a lot. Uh And he's called Booger Man. Just like about a decade later, one of the guys who developed this game just happened to be a subscriber to ZBS. And comes out with this video game called Booger Man. Uh Uh-oh. And people wrote in letters to ZBS, this like little public radio station in New York. It's like, are you going to sue this guy? It's like, I'm not going to sue Data East. (laughs) (laughs) You know, really, I, really I, I, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm not a litigious person. I really don't care. They made a booger video game. Let them have it. I'm fine. Okay. Uh, that should remind me of one more, and we got to move on after right. that. But um, a lot of, it took people a while to put this one together. But uh, you might have heard of a little franchise called Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. It's a story of a kid named Harry Potter who finds out there's a whole magical world full of monsters mm-hmm. and stuff, and he has to learn magic. In order to save the day, that's an extreme oversimplification, and I'm putting it that way on purpose. Uh, that's because in the I think the late '80s, there was a mm-hmm. film called Troll <laughs> with a character named Harry, with Potter a little kid it. named Harry Potter, literally named Harry Potter, who has to learn magic to save uh, the day from a magical troll, uh, which turns people into plants and kills Sonny Bono. That's right. Sonny Bono was in that. There's a scene where he turns into a tree, and it's actually really gross, and kind of scared me when I was a kid. But in any case, yeah, that it's, was... That's scary when you're a kid. That's pretty scary. Like, it's, it's, you know, it's scarier than Troll 2, that's for sure. Um, anyway, Troll 1, not a very good film. People were telling, oh, Troll 2 is one of the worst movies ever, and I'm like, Troll 1 was not good either. Troll Let's, 2 is also quite bad. Yeah, Troll 2 is, probably, is worse, but Troll 1 also sucks. Uh, but in any case, there was some sort of giggles and amusement. Um... I would be very surprised if that goes any... If A, if J.K. Rowling had seen it, I'd be somewhat surprised. B, if she had seen it mm-hmm. and she actually did any intentional basing off of it, yeah, I'd be was... super duper shocked. The most I can think of is that maybe at some point J.K. Rowling saw this movie on TV. He was like, oh, Harry Potter, that's a good like name. sunk into her subconscious like, just, just the name. Yeah. Just well, the name you, sunk you, in. You watch yeah. Day of the Locust and Donald Sutherland's character is named Homer Simpson, well, you look for at, instance. Well, you look at, uh, this is an intentional homage, but you look at uh, in the Star Wars Clone Wars, there's a character named uh, Commander Cody. And he's oh, and after he, the old 40 series. And he's got a jetpack, just like yeah. the Commando Cody uh, serials about a guy with a jetpack, based mm-hmm. on the, and the Rocketeer is based on that. But that's so, del- that's deliberate. That's yeah. deliberate. My point is this. It's just basically, I like that name. Right. So big to <laughs> thing. Anyway, we should move on. I'll move on. Here's yeah. a, a letter from pen. Name Redacted. There's okay. no name at the end of this one. Um, hello to the better version of the WWE Network, the William Whitney Entertainment Network. Nice. Uh, I've been listening to you guys since 2017. Uh, wow. I've been listening to Bibbs since he was on What the Flick. Oh, wow. Uh, I miss That's, What the Flick. Me I like too. That was a great program. I really, really love and appreciate you guys, and I'm looking forward to many more years of hearing your voices in my head. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure many will be sending you the list of their best of the year, as I have yet to ca- catch up on a lot of films this year. I'll instead make a list of the best movies I've seen based on your recommendations. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Um, number 10, The Hunger. 
Okay. Uh, number nine, The Car from 1977. Oh, nice. I, I saw that for the first time recently. The Hunger is the, uh, is the Tony Scott uh, uh, yeah, lesbian the, vampire the, the, the movie. Susan vampire, Sarandon. Yeah. That's a great movie. Uh, yeah. Su- Susan Sarandon, who in an interview said, it, they added uh, they added us uh, drinking wine in the script before we went to bed together. Like anyone would need wine to go to bed with Catherine Deneuve. Right? <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. Uh, number eight, The Stuntman. Ah. I like saw that for the first time. I'm so glad. If, I, if we got just one person to see The Stuntman. Who Stunt, wasn't, Stuntman's yeah. really it's, nobody talks about it. It's one of the best movies ever made about yeah. movies. Just please see um, it. It's so good. And number seven, Christine from 2016. Oh, great. Uh, Thank you. Number six, Rockula. <laughs> Yay! That's one of my favorite yeah. cult movies. It's a great Halloween musical. It's very yeah. funny and sweet. I love it. Uh, number five, Vamps. This is all you, because I haven't seen Vamps. <laughs> Vamps is, uh, uh, I, I, I'll, real fast. It's Amy Heckerling? It's Amy Heckerling. Yeah. So I was literally talking to my partner, um, uh, M. Lopez da Silva, and they were just like, I want to watch something and I don't know what to watch. Is there anything that's kind of like clueless but with vampires? And I was like, oh my God, did you just did you just say <laughs> the, the magic well, the, words? The director of Clueless made a movie about vampires. Yeah, with the star of Clueless and a couple of the other stars of Clueless, because Wallace Shawn is in it too. Oh, great. And it's, Vamps is a wonderful movie about Alicia Silverstone and Kristen Ritter as vampires in the modern day and how it's all just kind of sweet and fun and it's really funny and cute and you should totally see it. Please see Vamps. I love it so much. Uh, number four. Oh God, I, I can take blame for this one. Uh, Freeway, parts one and two. Oh, two. Whoa, okay. <laughs> have, have you seen Freeway 2? No, but it's just usually people don't bother. <laughs> After this, seeing the first Freeway. Well, it's just, it's just uh, not will, as well talked about, is it? Uh, and and talk there's even a comment on this one. I believe secretly that these two movies are the nightmares of every racist or sexist white cis male. Wow. Um, yeah, fr- Freeway, directed by Matthew Bright, um, and um, starring Reese Witherspoon, sorry, Reese and, Keith Witherspoon Weathers- and Keith Sutherland, Keith Sutherland Brooke um, Shields, uh, Richard Elfman, peripherally uh, in- in- involved. Uh, yeah, it is like sleazy and disgusting. Yeah. In, in the best possible way. It's and like it's like this modern ultra sleazy uh remake or, or uh, update. It's a riff of, on Red Riding Hood. Yeah, yeah. basically, but like what if there's what if the wolf was like a serial killer like stalking the highways and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. And what if the Red Riding Hood was like a delinquent and, yeah, and like and a total has badass. Yeah. Every, every melodramatic scare film sleaze tactic yeah. is employed in this movie. And there's Freeway Two uh with an, it's the Hansel and Gretel story. Oh, I didn't know uh, in that one, it's, okay. it's Natasha Lyonne and her girlfriends like flee from prison, and they're trying to find huh. sort of like the the grandmother or the the wicked witch in the woods is like this evil nun who's running a sex cult, and the oh. nun is played by Vincent Gallo. Oh, <laughs> it's, what? It's really bizarre. Is it good? Uh, it's it, it's as sleazy as the first. It's cheaper, so it feels okay. a little bit more uh, a little bit more scrappy. But okay. it, uh, it's not as good as Freeway, but okay. I like it. Uh, number three, In the Mouth of Madness. That's, that's one of my favorites. Um, yep. Number two, Sneakers. We talk about that movie yes. all the time. And number one, Sorry to Bother You. Ah, cool. Yeah, the Boots Riley film. Uh, P.S. I recommend the show Mrs. Fletcher as the next Kentle to soon show. Oh, I will, signed I will, name redacted. I will make a note of that. Uh, thank you for that. And hey, I really like this. And if anyone else wants to do this, um, send in a list of if, if you've ever seen movies based on our recommendations. You know, if we've read you aware of something, you sought something out. And you really dug it. And yeah. if you want to like send us like a list of like movies that you took a chance on because of us, uh-huh. no pressure. If, 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 if you've never done that, sorry. Mm-hmm. Or if we <laughs> failed you, sorry about that too. But if yeah, if you've ever done that, that'd be really cool to hear. I like it like yeah. that. That was fun. Oh, we just got a letter too. Oh shit. Okay. If, so the if, rule if we, is, if we get a letter while we're recording, we have to read it right away. That's the rule. 
That's so, the rule. We never record at the same time every week. In fact, we're recording at a very different time than usual yeah. this week. So you never know when we're recording. So, <laughs> so yeah, don't, always just, take a just, chance. Just send it in. Just send it in. All right, we might, well, we might get it while let's we're Let's do it. What do we got? But, uh, here's a letter from Jeremy. Hello, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Uh, greeting Bibbs and Rockmeister McEwell with Ooh. a very creative spelling. Um, I'm sorry this email isn't as timely. Timely? We just got it. Um, <laughs> it isn't as timely as I would have liked to have sent it, but while talking about Monty Python's film catalog, Bibbs had mentioned The Life of Brian is quite the heretical film. And I wish to address that thought. I'm a guy who was raised as a Baptist. I spent his college days practicing Anglicanism. And in 2013, I was confirmed in the Catholic Church. Hmm. I got a bachelor's degree studying theology and got almost enough credits to get a degree in Old Testament studies. Hmm. It was uh, my inability to learn Hebrew that ruined my getting that degree. Uh, From what I understand, it's uh, difficult for non-Hebrew speakers to learn Hebrew. Okay. Um, so with my uh, studies and background, I want to say that Monty Python's Life of Brian is surprisingly not heretical. It actually treats God and Jesus rather fairly. The only words you actually hear Jesus speak in the movie are from the Sermon on the Mount. True. Uh, ripped right from the pages of the Bible. Sure, you got the people in the back row not hearing hearing properly. Blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> and that is where the brilliance of the movie comes from. It isn't mocking God or even any specific religion. <coughs> Christianity, oof. Uh, but rather it is making fun of the process of how religious practices get developed, or another way of saying it, the human element of organized religion. Yeah, the idea is that no sooner had Jesus given a Sermon on the Mount than the people misinterpret him. Yeah, although there is the opening scene in Life of Brian where the the three wise men enter the nativity. Yeah, and they they go to the wrong hut. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk, we'll talk, we'll talk uh, when we're but, done. I, but actually, yeah. no, Jesus is intact in there. Jesus, Jesus, the Jesus, nothing movie. bad happens to Jesus yeah. in that movie other than, yeah. like, even in that movie. Like, he, I, I think if well, he... Well, nothing it, bad happens except for being but, fucking crucified. But, 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 but yeah. that doesn't happen in this in this film. I don't think I don't think it's the, happening... There, I think there's a shot where they see, like, the crosses in the distance. But is it Christ. Jesus in there, though? Because I, I know because they crucified people on the rag. Like, it wasn't yeah, like... My point is this. I Jesus's story is Jesus's story is untouched. By Monty Python's inanity. Yeah. Um, I'm not, we'll talk, we'll talk. But there's, there's more in this letter. Um, If God revealed himself to humanity, such an experience would need to be told. It isn't something you can really keep to yourself. It would be like you seeing a movie that revolutionized the entire industry. It demands comment. People, whether they did experience God or hallucinated or some other thing, had a theophany and needed to comment. Theophany. That's not a word I know. That's a great word. Um, but that the person passes away and their student starts to keep that that experience going by talking about it. Then they are removed from person per, uh, the person who's the source of the experience. So personal thoughts start creeping in and disagreements grow. The argument of, well, that's how Mr. So-and-so would have said it. So the strange web of thought, which has its roots in the original person, starts fracturing and expanding as more and more time goes on. And sometimes the arguments can get petty and maybe even mean-spirited. And then there are wars and assassinations and abuses of power etc etc all right. monty python did was remove time and jumped straight to the bullshit <laughs> <laughs> the, the, it's the whole uh it's the shoe follow the shoe it's not a shoe it's a sandal we need to gather shoes hold your shoe above your head as a sign don't follow the shoe follow the gourd give me your shoe it feels like a glimpse into some of the real sorts of debates that happened in church history sure. sometimes you feel like they rather lost the point those historical church leaders um also, what Monty Python is doing is poking fun at simple Second Temple period sectarian Judaism. Ah. That's just a fancy way of saying the time when Jesus would have been walking around Jerusalem. Right. That time historically was fraught with rebellions trying to forcibly end Roman occupation, which caused the Romans to clamp down harder on the people of Israel, which led to a more so, more social disturbances and, rose clamp, and Rome clamp, 
clamped down even harder, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. The Jewish people of the time were desperate to get out from under Roman occupation because their being there was an affront to the promise they claimed were to their uh, ancient father Abraham. So some of those rebel leaders took on the mantle of Messiah to try and rally their religious fervor to get the people on their side. Hmm. But people suck, and no one could agree on how they should do (laughs) such and such or who who should be their leader. So that's why you get the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea, the Popular People's Front, or the Judean Popular People's Front. Splinter. So yeah, uh, maybe there was a wasn't a row of messiahs lining the street spouting the ideological idioms, Mm. but that John Cleese response to Brian demanding he was not the one true messiah, he says, I say you are, and I should know I've followed a few. (laughs) It's fucking genius. (laughs) That practically summed up the whole joke of the movie. People suck, and sometimes we just don't know what we're talking about. Uh, And lastly, sorry, this is rather long. Uh, I've probably written a whole paper on this topic. You kind of already have. Read this paper. Uh, Crucifying the whole cast at the end. Anyone who's says that was blasphemous doesn't know anything about the roman empire you start a rebellion against rome crucifixion you murdered someone crucifixion you stole from the rich crucifixion you jaywalked crucifixion (laughs) crucifixion very well one cross on the left yeah line of left one cross each um rome hung so many people on crosses not just one guy born in bethlehem with two randos beside him yeah it's true yeah the crucifix the portrayal of uh jesus on the cross i would say is something not to be tampered with but crucifixion as a punishment is brutal vile disgusting painful torturous and i'm not surprised in the slightest that monty python would use this as the backdrop for the song always look on the bright side of life again a fucking genius yeah that is one of the greater comedy moments just in cinema i uh always look on the bright side of life scene i uh it's one of the great comedy moments in cinema it's one of the greatest songs ever written for a movie mm. uh i was this is not me bragging this is just historical fact uh, i was valedictorian in my high school and there was Ooh, a lot uh. of i know i know it, it doesn't matter now mm. but like it was at the time it was seen as kind of a big deal and mm. uh, there were a lot of people who were really putting pressure on me like hey listen i'm the first person in my family to graduate from high school you need to make sure you really bring it with this fucking speech and i'm like <laughs> jesus all right god and i couldn't think of anything to do so i sang always look on the bright side of life oh <laughs> that's <laughs> Just, really cute yeah uh, there are reports of, uh, in the British Army, a ship was sinking, and the soldiers were standing on the deck oh as the ship God. was sinking, singing, uh, sinking, singing, always look on the bright side I, of life. I, one of the coolest... I think they were rescued, but yeah, uh, it was kind of like a, a little bit of irony there. I know, real fast, just to finish this point. One of the coolest interviews I've ever done in my whole life was I got to interview Eddie Izzard and Eric Idle together oh god that was a great day for me uh and uh but i got to tell eric idol that story mm. and eddie Izzard was like i've been telling eric this as far as i'm concerned that is earth's national anthem he's <laughs> always looking on the front side of life uh anyway uh jeremy goes on i'm yeah. sorry if that was rather long but no, you're fine. Uh, i'm just convinced that people who get angry about the life of brian being blasphemous either a haven't actually watched the movie or b don't just don't just don't get the point of the movie. With that, I sign off. I hope the both for you best. Sincerely, Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for that. And um, yeah, I, uh, we were talking about this in our list of the best films based on television series. And we both mm. picked uh, for our Monty Python film, because mm. we easily could have done more than one Monty Python film, yeah. uh, Holy Grail. Uh, I believe what I said was something to the effect of I love Life of Brian, but um, it's. I think what I was trying to get at is that it's kind of controversial. Um, and I think, and I understand why some people mm. think it's controversial. And I think there are elements of the film. I think you're right about everything that they were trying to get at. I think there are elements of the film that come across better than others now. Um, I think there are a few scenes, a few uh, monologues and tirades that, in a vacuum, and maybe even in context, 
aren't great. But mm. I agree that the overall purpose of the film is to deconstruct how fanaticism begins yeah, and how it, how it emerges from good intention. It, it's a, it's yeah. a criticism of um, church corruption. Yeah, not not God and how it's not how church corruption doesn't even have to be dogmatic. Mm. It's just, it's just people hu- weird human foibles that yeah. are entering into this system of the divine, a system yeah. of the infinite. And it's uh, those that's, that's a, a kind of a rather strange juxtaposition that we find all of civilization existing right. inside. of. I, I don't think every single uh, thing that gets targeted in uh, life of Brian is targeted equally. And I think some people will take some some uh, umbrage at that. And I think there's something to be said for that, but it's a longer conversation mm-hmm. for a longer time. I'm glad you wrote in that email because I think that movie is often a bit misunderstood. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad we had... The, and I'm glad it, it does support my overall thesis, though, which is that Monty Python and a lot of their humor comes from knowing a lot about history. And they yeah, made some very yeah, smart films. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, All right. We got time for one or two more. One or two more. All right. right. Um, here is a letter from Benjamin. Hello, Benjamin. Hi. Uh, good day to you, Bibbs and Rockmeister... Rock Meister Meister Rocker. Ooh. <laughs> I'll take it. Is that from uh, 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 Santa Claus is Coming to Town? I don't know. Uh, Burger Meister Meister Burger. I think it's the name of the bad guy in that, uh, okay. in that special. <laughs> yeah. Um, after watching The Harder They Fall, Ooh. Oh, great, yes. I decided to watch some more classic westerns as they are a feel-good genre for me. Cool. I watched Silverado for the first time and really liked it. Okay. And went back to one of my old favorites, the classic Young Guns. <laughs> As part of the plot of that film, uh, the heroes are being chased by a bounty hunter, John Kinney. And at the climax of the film, one of the characters, while mortally wounded, shoots him. This made me start wondering about the effectiveness of characters with no lines in films. Mm. We don't see John Kenny say anything in the film, and still the final shootout, he's just a guy on a horse with a big white hat in the distance. What is your take on characters that are supposed to be plot significant, but the character itself doesn't say anything? What do you think the best example of this is? Thank you for your tireless work. Sincerely, Benjamin. Um, that is a great question. And this is something that um, there's a couple of different ways this happens in movies. Uh, sometimes uh, there are characters who, for one reason or another, cannot speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, there are some characters who are simply there to be more of a presence and they don't have to they can get it all uh uh with uh uh with their presence mm-hmm. the example that comes to mind the most for me of this and i think the, the best example for me is and i want to make sure i get the character's name right so give me uh, here we go mm-hmm. uh is the character of joe lafour's a uh, real historical figure uh from butch cassidy and the sundance kid okay speaking of westerns uh, but well, before, I thought you were going to talk about mole rats for a second. Well, then, well, that then, character then, of Mars is inspired uh, by Butch Cassidy. Yeah, okay. um, Butch Cassidy's on that's good. If you've never seen it, it's based off of uh, the true story of two Wild West outlaws uh, played by Paul Newman and Robert Redford. It's considered a classic of the genre, and I think with very, very good cause. Uh, and there's an extended sequence where these very plucky, amiable outlaws are being chased across the frontier uh, mm. by a man named LaForce. Lafors is a character we never see or never really get a close look at. We just see him in the distance. I think he has like a white or a yellow hat or something. There we go. He's a white hat. All right. That's it. He's just that presence. He's just that figure in the background. It's like it follows. (laughs) But like the monster in the background is just the law coming to get you. And this guy just comes to represent all of that. Um, So here are these two characters who are dashing and brave and charismatic and not afraid of anything. And here's this little tiny figure in the distance in a white hat that scares the shit out of them. Mm. 
That is a character who makes a lot out of nothing. <laughs> that is a lot out of nothing. It's a great example of this for me. Um, there, I, I'm always fond of uh, characters that we kind of project a lot of emotion onto mm-hmm. uh, and don't necessarily display it. Um, I'm reminded mm-hmm. of, and this might be a strange example, a 2013 film called Oblivion. It was a Tom Cruise vehicle. Okay. Where he's, he's like repairing drones that are sort of scanning the planet for, yeah. for unknown information. I don't remember which character you're thinking uh, of right he now. Go, well, because it's not really a character. He goes a little bit off the grid and he incurs the ire of drone number 166. Now, <laughs> the, the drones themselves are just like these big eggs with like cameras yeah. on the front and guns. Like yeah. they're not characters. They're just these floating robot things. Yeah, but there's one we keep coming back to over and over yeah, again. We yeah, we like it crashed and it repaired itself and now it's mad it doesn't yeah. talk it doesn't have any personality it doesn't even have a face but we understand that this thing is now it's javert now yeah it's like out to get tom cruise yeah and i like that that robots has like all of this personality that we're just sort of projecting onto i, I wonder if that was inspired by there's this episode of the newer battlestar galactica mm. where the idea of the newer battlestar galactica is uh, whenever there are like these like battles in space between like our heroes and their viper cool space jets or whatever uh-huh. and then they're facing off against these like more ufo type things but rather than being piloted by a robot in there the ufos are the robots themselves okay and because they're robots, when they're exploded, whatever they just were like experienced mm. gets uploaded back into the cloud and they put it into another one. Okay. So they're constantly getting smarter. When All you right. kill them, they just learn from that mistake. Mm. And there's like one that has been gunned through so many iterations and it's just like the most badass. <laughs> it's like the Red Baron of Battlestar Galactica. But it's that just really a spaceship. Scared. But it's just the spaceship with like a one big eye on it or yeah. whatever like that. It's really cool, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's right. a good example. Um, there's other ways to do this though. And there's a lot of times they're like characters used for comic relief. Uh, Harpo oh, in yeah. uh, the various Marx Brothers movies. He, he rarely, if ever speaks. Um, and, um, uh, he's just, he, he represents each member of the Marx, of the Marx Brothers represents a different kind of comedy. Mm. Uh, Harpo represents the more uh, broad physical comedy. Mm-hmm. Chico represents the more uh, he's the fast uh, talker. He's the, the fast the talker, man, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then uh, Groucho is more of the like sort of the MC showman vaudeville mm-hmm. type. Um, so that's one where just the situation really works. For there, you got characters like uh, the unfortunately named Dopey from Snow White, mm-hmm. uh, who a lot of people have a lot of affection for. Uh, that's another one where probably not the best representation in a variety of different ways, but I, uh, I, you know. I just read an article on Dopey. Wow. Um, as it turns out, Dopey was inspired by a comedian that the animators saw at like the nudie hall down the street when they what? were done uh, animating. I did not know that. That's yeah. Amazing. Cause they, they went down to the burlesque hall and they'd see the, the, uh, yeah, you know, the nude dancers, but they'd also, there's also oh. comedy and like other entertainment acts in between the nude dancers and yeah, they, there was this guy who wore loose clothes and he evidently had a very long mm. tongue. Yeah. That was his claim to fame. And they liked the way he moved. They liked his physical comedy. That's dopey. Wow. That's where we got dopey. Wow. Uh, oh, another good example of this is in the people are talking about. Now, you know, it's like a lot of uh, the people we're talking about are either comic relief characters mm. or they're badasses. Uh, and here's one where a character who technically does speak, but most people couldn't quote their dialogue because they speak so little and what they say is almost nothing. Boba Fett. <laughs> there you go. And the original Star so Wars trilogy about this guy now. Yeah, the original Star Wars trilogy. Boba Fett was a bounty hunter who had, I think, he only had like one line, and his line is like, "He's no he's good worth, to me. He's dead. worth nothing to me. Dead. Yeah, he's yeah. worth nothing to me. Dead. Like that's basically it. You add your own badassery to Boba Fett because mm-hmm. he doesn't actually like. If you actually look at what Boba Fett does in those movies, leaving out 
the ancillary universe, leaving out the Star Wars holiday special animated segment, uh, and just look at those movies as the canon, which Disney did. Mm. What do we know about Boba Fett? Okay, he's a, and again only going off of the original trilogy, not going off of the prequels, and even this that doesn't really affect this. What do we know about Boba Fett from the original trilogy? One, he's a bounty hunter. Fair enough. He's hired to find. Um, but he um, he and like another Solo, right? Yes, yeah, he's, he's hired to find the Millennium Falcon, and right. he's hired by the he's hired by Darth Vader, and Darth Vader doesn't only hire Boba Fett. He hires like a half dozen bounty hunters because Boba Fett isn't good enough on his own, mm. and when he's Talking to all of these bounty hunters and giving them their job assignment, he singles out Boba Fett to say no disintegrations, which is basically him, you know, uh, uh, telling someone off at work, like in front of everybody. I'm going to say you do a shitty job of this. I'm tired of you disintegrating everybody when I want them alive. Knock it off, Boba Fett. You suck. And Boba Fett's like, all right. And then Boba Fett figures out that Han Solo's going away with the trash. Fine. And then rather than catch Han Solo and Princess Leia and the droids on his own. He just calls the Empire and has them do it. <laughs> he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do a fucking thing. And then when he takes uh, Han Solo away and just flies away, doesn't really get in the action at all. No, he takes just... him takes him to Jabba's palace, fucks off there for like a year because a year takes place between those two movies. Is there really it, that much time? There's a year between Return of the Jedi. There's a whole thing. Oh, we'll find Han Solo, and I'm like, uh, you know, he's with Jabba. Jabba's like the king of Tatooine, where Luke grew up. So he knows where he is. Mm. Uh, I don't think it should be that fucking hard, but that's a separate story. And then, also, isn't there all this subterfuge about like sneaking in? Oh, and that, to sneak that, in? that plan makes no sense. But that's neither here nor there. My point I, is this: I just, I just remember in that movie, it's like we yeah. finally have him back, and they go up like into orbit yeah. to like finally fly away with Han Solo. Yeah, and there's this whole fleet of ships waiting for them up there. Blast like, them out of the fucking... Like, how, just like, you take, were just going to kill Jabba the Hutt anyway. Take Why a few not? weapons down. There's like, yeah, give us Han Solo or we'll blow up your shit. Yeah, yeah. like, seriously, you were just going to blow him up. You were going to kill Jabba the Hutt anyway. What was your plan here? So, like, I get you wanted to ask first, but when that failed, your plan was to kill Jabba the Hutt. So who gives a shit? Anyway, that's a separate thing. But then, like, Zoboba Fett, who has done nothing badass so far, hmm. uh, when all the shit starts going down, he starts fighting a little bit, and then he gets bumped into accidentally and falls into the Sarlacc pit. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's your badass hero. And then and the prequels, yeah, we saw him. He was a little kid. He didn't do a damn thing. Silence was Boba Fett's mask. <laughs> because he didn't say anything, he didn't st- you you were allowed to project onto this figure uh-huh. that he was some kind of unstoppable badass because he had a rocket pack. And he actually didn't prove that ever. And one of the things I actually like about the new Boba Fett show is that, yeah, he does some cool stuff every now and then, but he's also kind of a dorkus. And, like, he wants to, like, solve everyone's problems by talking and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that. I Some people are, like, mad that Boba Fett isn't badass now. And I'm like, good, he never was. <laughs> it's all from the exterior shit. It's all people rejecting us. So that's another example. Anyway, uh, that is it for We've Got Mail. we got to cut it a little short this week. Um... But thank you, everybody, who wrote in. Thank you, everybody, for subscribing to the channel. If you're a Patreon uh, subscriber, especially big thank you for that. Uh, we have a lot of exclusive shows on our Patreon shows about Star Trek, which talked about this thing. We got shows uh, about uh, every film that's ever been nominated for Best Picture. We got commentary tracks. We've got Batman podcasts. We've got you can vote for future episodes of our various prog- uh, programs. There's a lot going on over there. If you want to join up, it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, if you want to email us here once again to contribute to this show and uh, set us 
ranting and raving as we like to do. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is the P.O. Box? Because uh, I can't remember. Once again, uh, Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565. Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, hey, don't forget, we do have a soap store. Uh, Salt Cat Soap is our soap store. We're on social media, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, at Salt Cat Soap. You can find links to the tw- to the Etsy store there, or you can look at Etsy for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. We make designer soaps. We just released uh, some really cool floral gift sets for Valentine's Day. It's a set of three very colorful soaps, and they all smell like delicious uh, flowers, or I guess aromatic flowers, maybe mm. a bit more accurate. Uh, but they smell amazing. Like our, our our home has smelled like amazing since we started making these nice. things. Uh, so we hope people enjoy them. We've already sold a few already. There's a few left over. So feel free to fill in those orders. You can get them in time for Valentine's Day. Your loved ones would love you for it. Mm. Uh, but thank you everybody uh, once again who supported the store and left us reviews. It means the world to us. Um, all right, that's it for we've got mail. Thank you everybody once again. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney.